a time series database is optimized for the storage of high volumes of sequential data across time. Time series databases are often organized as columnar data stores that can write large amounts of data quickly. These systems can sometimes tolerate data loss because the data are being gathered very quickly and that data is usually used for monitoring and other applications that require aggregated data sets rather than high fidelity, highly important individual transactions. The demand for time series databases has grown over the last decade with the rise of mobile devices and the decreasing cost of cloud storage. There's been an increase in the number of systems that require monitoring, and some of those systems produce an incredibly large amount of data, requiring compression, downsampling, and garbage collection. Rob Skillington is an engineer at Uber, where he helped create M3DB, a time series database. In a previous show, Rob described the basics of M3DB and how it helps Uber with storing large volumes of data from Prometheus, which is a monitoring system. In today's show, we discuss the field of time series databases and Rob's approach to building M3. Apache Kafka has changed the world of data infrastructure, and Kafka Summit is the place to learn about new design patterns and engineering practices in the world of Kafka. Kafka Summit returns to San Francisco September 30th through October 1st, 2019. Kafka Summit has sold out in New York and London, and the San Francisco event is likely to be just as popular. Listeners of Software Engineering Daily can get 25% off their ticket to Kafka Summit by entering promo code SED. With the promo code, Kafka Summit is only about $900 to attend. And if that's still too expensive, you can consider asking your company or your manager to pay for your ticket. Kafka Summit is an educational experience with top engineers from places like Netflix, Microsoft, Lyft, and Tesla. At Kafka Summit, you can meet with experts who will help you address your toughest Apache Kafka and event streaming questions. Or you can start to learn the basics of how to deploy and operate Apache Kafka. There are also hands-on beginner and advanced training courses available, as well as certification. Join the Kafka Summit September 30th through October 1st, 2019, and get 25% off your ticket by using promo code SED. I plan on attending Kafka Summit, and I hope to see you there. Rob Skillington, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here again. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Your last episode was wonderful, and listeners can check that out. It's about Uber and infrastructure there, and specifically M3DB and scaling Prometheus. Today, we're going to talk about time series databases more specifically. Time series databases are specifically built for time series. Why do we need domain-specific databases for time series data? Yeah, that's a great question. So time series databases, it's interesting that they're not actually extremely well defined. Most definitions of a time series database will describe them as a key value store like database that allows for appending values associated with a given timestamp and that they are intended for efficient 
retrieval of values for a key over a given range of time. So that's the primary concept of why they even exist. So you can actually represent that data model with plenty of other databases. They are mainly used for relatively high volume or other types of special use cases where a traditional database doesn't do a very good job at either cost-wise or performance-wise for storing and retrieving values in an OLAP kind of like style workload. Could you give a few examples of those types of high volume data applications? Most definitely. So, you know, KDB, which is one of the oldest and fastest time series databases around, was released in 2003 for financial institutions primarily. That is definitely a powerhouse in use by the financial institutions for, you know, storing a lot of market data very quickly and being able to analyze at a very high resolution different parts of the market and the data they're collecting about the market in real time. But also, you know, which which is obviously used for high frequency trading and other types of use cases. So that's kind of historically where a lot of like the oldest and probably most production grade time series databases started. However, monitoring is another, you know, extremely high volume use case, which collects a lot of data around specific types of things that you're tracking again over time. And a lot of those values are changing in real time, either at, you know, very high resolution, so down to sub-second or, you know, more more granular resolution for higher level insights at say like, you know, 10, 15, 30, 60 second resolution. And, you know, and, and there's plenty of others as well in the internet of things. There is a significant amount of, you know, different t- types of key attributes that people like to monitor. So for instance, things like battery level or energy efficiency, for instance, like on your console, there's probably some say, like the console that you're using to play games or watch movies at home, you know, some of the data about the energy efficiency may be shipped back to the manufacturer. And then they can, in aggregate, basically analyze if due to different software updates or different firmware or just different like types of hardware and how that's performing over time, essentially. So there's a whole bunch of, you know, these type of use cases, but those are some of the more popular ones. When we think about an application like Uber, there is a high volume of transactions that are going on across Uber. And those transactions, maybe they're handled by MongoDB or they're handled by a relational database like Postgres. These are transactions like a user summoning a ride or a user paying for something or a user ending their ride. For each of these things, there is a network hop. There's a write to a database. What are the parts of the relational database infrastructure, the NoSQL infrastructure that fall over when we go from talking about these transactional use cases to these use cases where we're gathering higher volumes of data? Yeah, great question. So, you know, basically time series databases can be built on things that we like to call row-oriented databases, or they can be built on column-based databases. And, you know, column-based databases support basically higher compression on the values, and they also locate the values next to a specific key right next to each other, both in memory and on disk. So for row-oriented databases, 
And, you know, there's some time series databases built on on row-oriented databases like TimescaleDB, which is built on Postgres. Other time series stores actually don't even implement the storage layer themselves, and they use, like, Cassandra, DynamoDB, or other, you know, similar kind of offerings as backends, and those are all row-oriented. Now, the, the difference there is, you know, it's basically like the, the querying for them is essentially scan-based in a row storage solution. And then for column-based, you know, once you find the key, it's a, it's a matter of basically jumping to the range in the column that's stored next to that key and selecting the values. But once you find the start of that range, it's very quickly to, you know, grab the consequent values rather than traversing the rows in a big, you know, row, in a row-oriented engine. So that's, you know, one reason why on the query side, why essentially, you know, you may end up seeing much better performance from column-based time series databases and just time series databases in general. And then on the value, like writing these values into the database, which is kind of, I think, more what you were were asking about. Yeah, traditional OLTP-like database for such as like MySQL or you know, Postgres, which is, as you mentioned, you know, usually offers transactions for online processing. They tend to essentially offer a whole lot of features that provide a high level of consistency. They offer a bunch of different indexing techniques. So they're not very opinionated about, you know, any one thing, although I'm sure, you know, with certain respects they are to the feature set, but they're, they're more around offering a very, you know, a very strict and a reliable set of features around some of the data that becomes your source of truth for your business. So, you know, they aren't going to optimize for high bulk inserts. They're not going to optimize for inserting streams of values. And, you know, consequently, a lot of the time, they just can't write as many samples per second or, or values per second for time series oriented workloads. And, you know, and that, and that at, at high level, at high scale can end up meaning the difference, you know, the, the cost difference can end up being very, very high. You're alluding to differences between column-oriented databases and row-oriented databases. We've talked about this on some previous episodes. You're also alluding to the fact that perhaps the data is more sensitive in the context of a relational or a transactional data store, the kinds of things that you're using Postgres or you're using MongoDB for. You really can't afford data loss in the case of a user on Uber, for example, if they're summoning a ride or if they're ending a ride. That's a really important database transaction that has to occur, whereas in a time series database, you may be able to afford some data loss. You may not need every time data point. Are there any other trade-offs or notable considerations we can make as we are moving to the domain of time series from the transactional workload? Most definitely. And actually, data loss is something that you ideally you know, never put up with a database that you're using. Having said that, obviously, there are features you do want to trade off. And honestly, any database that you use that is, you know, has a single replica is likely to possibly have data loss if you're not doing synchronous replication. 
But getting more back to the point of what other things we can trade off of is primarily it comes down to things like consistency. So, you know, with when you support transactions and the ability to make sure that several things must occur and you want to atomically update maybe multiple rows or at least like some values within a single row, that means that, you know, you need to basically have some version of M- MVCC, which is multi-version concurrency control. So you may want to use a database that essentially, you know, databases like MySQL and Postgres and other row-oriented transactional databases offer multi-version concurrency control, which means that you can get a single view of the data, even though many other transactions or edits or mutations may be happening at the same time. But you are guaranteed at least that the data that you're reading and writing within a single transaction can be looking at a single set of data that is guaranteed to not change between the transaction starting and the transaction ending, or at least not meaningfully in the way for your transaction that you are running. So a lot of those really, you know, powerful features really aren't needed for for certain different types of workloads. And time series database definitely a lot of the time will trade off consistency because consistency, especially with replication involved, either involves you know a single write master, or it involves essentially some consensus protocol like Paxos or Raft or something like that to make sure that all replicas arrive at the same agreed upon value for for that write. So that's a huge one. And then there's other things, honestly, that for you know even more high volume use cases where it's acceptable for data to show up so a little bit later after you write it so if you don't need the ability to read your own writes immediately after a write is complete then you can put up with the database asynchronously making that value accessible to your query layer and that means you know there's a ton of different batching that it can do so it can essentially decide that I might put a whole bunch of values together and then make them appear to queries all at the same time. But, you know, a a side effect of that is essentially there is a small delay between an insert finishing and an insert showing up. And the ability to be able to do that is, is pretty valuable because it really does unlock a next level of high insertion volume. And, you know, when it's combined with tactics to write that data durably to the journal before it batches that together with other rights, it means that it can be durable as well. So you can reply to the client knowing that you've basically written that as part of a batch to the disk, but haven't indexed it yet and haven't made it show up to the query layer just yet. So there's a number of consistency loosenesses that we have available to us. We may not have to have consistent write properties the the writes in the database may not have to necessarily appear in order the reads to that database may not necessarily have to appear in order because oftentimes these databases are read as aggregates and you think about the end user the end user is probably consuming a dashboard they're looking at a graph and if there's a data point missing or a data point that's slightly out of order it's probably not a big deal because you're going to have the graph doing interpolation and it's probably zoomed out sufficiently that it just gets smoothed out. And so that said, I'd like to go a little bit deeper on the ingest path for this data, because if we think about the kind of 
asymptotic ideal of how much data an application like Uber would be consuming. If you're riding around in a car with somebody that's essentially a stranger, like ideally you this is a situation where pretty much you want it you want to have like constant surveillance. Like you want your phone to be communicating with the backend servers as aggressively as possible. In an ideal world you would have down to the smallest sliver of time you would have your phone heartbeating to the backend servers and having this data written to Uber to Uber's backend. Obviously, that's not possible. So there's some batching that's taking place on your mobile client. That data is being sent to Uber's backend, and then it's being downsampled, as we discussed in that previous episode. And then, you know, that downsampled data might be written to a database like M3DB, or maybe it's maybe there's some intermediary, like a Kafka system in the loop. Before we get into the internals of time series database architecture, let's talk a little bit more contextually about the ingest path. When we talk about data that's often coming from a user's mobile device, it's being ingested by some kind of back-end set of systems, and then eventually it's making its way to the time series database. Put this time series database architecture in context. Yeah, so that's a great question. And what we find with the location data that comes from a trip, yeah, we do collect it, you know, up to basically two-second resolution from both both applications that are running, if we can, during the length of a trip. What we end up finding is that, you know, this generates a lot of data. And also, yeah, the, the latency to which it gets into that database is essentially, you know, can be dependent on what type of application you're building on top of that. You know, for Uber, which has features like share your ride and other types of location-based features that basically want to show you, you know, up to the second where your trip is or or where a driver nearby is, writing those values with low latency and making them available to the query layer at low latency is, is relatively important. So a lot of the time, you know, Uber tries to avoid actually putting really too much of a buffer in between the data point arriving from the mobile phone in the data center and you know it, it being inserted into a time series database. And so it's funny that we're talking about this because you know M3DB is basically taking over that the storage of this data, the location-based data for these types of trips. And what we've noticed is yeah that basically because we have we basically have inbuilt buffering and batching support into the client itself, which helps improve the latency well, traditionally, when you increase batch size, it actually decreases the ability to give you low latency because you have to wait for a few values to arrive. So we have this interesting mechanism where as data points from mobile phones are showing up to application servers that write them to the database, we wait at least a minimum of five milliseconds before we even start sending the data to M3DB. And this helps essentially for the high write volume case, you always are guaranteed to get pretty full batches of data. But for the low volume case, it does hurt the P99s because you're stuck with a five millisecond latency buffer essentially on the minimum end rather than being able to go like sub millisecond if you turn that feature off. So yeah, there's all these sorts of interesting things that happen there. But I will say that the data can also be written to Kafka in parallel. So, you know, if you want to have the ability to replay some of that data, you can then also basically start consuming off of the Kafka feed 
to replay that data into the database. And that's useful if, say, like, for whatever reason, you have a problem between your application layer talking to the database. So Kafka can uh, like act as basically a nice intermediary buffer of data that will should always be available, hopefully, you know, regardless of whether your connectivity to the database is up or not. BuildKite is a CI-CD platform for running scalable and secure continuous integration pipelines. BuildKite helps you keep your builds fast and reliable, even as they grow large. BuildKite's web UI and APIs are fully managed, well-documented, and backed by great support and SLAs. Teams can easily set up and maintain their own build pipelines and get help directly from BuildKite support. Build configurations are checked into source control, and it works with GitHub and GitHub Enterprise, GitLab, and Slack workflows. There's also support for webhooks, GraphQL, and plugins, letting you extend BuildKite in new ways. The BuildKite agent is open source, written in Go, and you run it within your infrastructure. It's under your control, so you can be sure that the source code and the secrets don't leave your infrastructure. There's an AWS CloudFormation stack to get you started, and it auto-scales from zero to hundreds of agents. Or you can deploy it to a Kubernetes cluster, a cloud provider, bare metal hardware, or a cluster of macOS machines. Visit buildkite.com sedaily to learn more and see how Shopify used BuildKite as they scaled from 300 to 1,200 engineers, they migrated between cloud providers, and they kept their build times under five minutes. Check it out at buildkite.com sedaily. Thanks to BuildKite for being a new sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and it's always nice to see new CICD platforms such as BuildKite. Let's start to get into the architecture of a time series database in more detail. Now, first of all, you created your own time series database. And when you started M3DB, there were other time series databases. We talked about this a little bit last time. And I think that the motivation for building your own time series database was the fact that the other time series databases were not scalable enough for Uber. And that's kind of a curious idea because, I mean, obviously not every database can or should scale to support a company like Uber. Like, we've done shows on Facebook recently, and Facebook builds its own infrastructure. Like, cloud infrastructure simply doesn't work for Facebook. It's at too big of a scale. Can you give some larger context for why these hyperscale companies sometimes cannot be compatible with off-the-shelf infrastructure like the time series databases that were available at the beginning of you starting to work on M3DB? Yeah, most definitely. I think you'll find that most people, when I tell them that we ended up writing a time series database, kind of 
take a very strange look at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the second you mention that to them. And, you know, rightly so. I, I think that it's, it's not a small feat. It's a super large investment. And ultimately, especially for people that haven't written a database before, it's something that you're doing that you clearly have not you know, done a PhD in or you don't have the research and education behind it. So it's, it's always a questionable thing to do. Having said that, I think that you'll find that some of the time series databases that have been built and specifically at you know, Facebook, they built Gorilla, which was a purely in-memory time series database. At Netflix, they built Atlas, which again, was pretty much a purely in-memory time series database. A lot of these are custom built for the application that they're supporting, not necessarily basically building a database to be a generic database to be able to be used by almost any application. So that is primarily, I, th- I think, a reason why some of these companies you've, you find will write their own time series database or you know, come up with a similar custom solution that is not available by cloud vendors or, or even you know, vendors in the time series database world. Like I definitely have mentioned a few before, like KDB is a you know, enterprise time series database. So is InfluxDB. They're, you know, unless you are using a single node in InfluxDB, that, that is an enterprise database. TimescaleDB and QuasarDB are also time enterprise databases. So essentially, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, a lot of reasons why you might do that, but they tend to end up being purely around cost efficiency and scale. And most companies, you know, can use a lot of out, out of the box offerings out there today without having to build their own because they're probably not quite yet at that relationship where they're trying to save on the, the infrastructure side of things. But I will say that, you know, it, it really does come down to your business model as well. So if your business model is very high margin, then you can get away with using very expensive infrastructure. And then probably, you know, the more lower margin you are, the more lean you need to be. But what ends up happening is that monitoring data, especially, tends to be a function of how many engineers you employ, not necessarily how big your systems are or or how much money you make or anything like that. So it does tend to be that at the you know, the bigger engineering organizations, you have a much higher volume of, of monitoring data. And a lot of the time, it's not just being used for purely monitoring. It's for our research and development, you know, obviously as well. So it's more like application insights. And, you know, a lot of people will even use it for tracking how an experiment is performing in their application or how certain parts of the business are actually operating in real time due to you know how their application is performing. So I will say that essentially you know a lot a lot of those factors combine to the point where people say, okay, I know I shouldn't write a database, but <laughs> given how much data I'm collecting and the margins of my business and how many engineers I have, it will make a lot of sense and enable us to either more things or the same amount of things much more cheaply. And you'll, you'll actually notice here that Facebook and Netflix and, you know, I, I think even Monarch at the beginning, I'm not sure what it is like now, but most of their time series databases are purely in memory, which is a lot easier to get started. So that can also help out as well, because it means essentially you don't have to be 
an extremely well-versed database engineer to implement an in-memory database a lot of the time. So I think that's why you'll see as well that a lot of them start out as in-memory time series databases at these companies and then either stay that way and move the rest of the data to HDFS or you know some other long-term store, or they start to actually make that time series database both in-memory and disk-based. Could you speak broadly about the trade-off between storing something in memory versus storing something on disk in a database architecture. I know this is kind of a computer science fundamental sort of thing, but maybe you could just explain it and then put it in the context of a database architecture. Because I feel like a lot of times in the conversations I have with different database companies, the trade-off between in memory and disk and the sort of flush to disk model, the batching of in-memory data to disk can be really important and it can be kind of hard to understand. Yeah, most definitely. I think it's an extremely interesting time, honestly, for databases. You know, I think that there is a lot of hardware that is basically becoming cheaper and cheaper that has more memory available. So, you know, what traditionally seemed like a really crazy thing, like keeping hours of data in memory <laughs> before writing that as one block to disk, seems possible. As long as you have a durable, you know, journal or commit log of the data that you're saving. And Cassandra, you know, is a prime example of this with its, basically its journal and then the SS table-like structure that it will flush a whole bunch of values together. So, you know, I, I think that so there's two ways to look at this. On the right path, it's all about optimizing how frequently you combine files together on disk or essentially you know, how much overhead do you pay for organizing the data so that it can be queried efficiently. And basically, the more memory you use, the less you have to write it to disk and then read it back from disk and write it back to disk again combined with another data set. However... The more memory you use, then obviously the more dangerous it becomes operating your database because once you burst that memory bubble, you know, you, you have to reboot up the whole database and then basically find some way to take all that data that was in the journal and then actually write it out as an SS table or yeah, some kind of, you know, optimized for query structure on the disk again after, you know, crashing. So on the right path, it's kind of this trade-off of using more memory will mean less writes to disk and then, you know, well, as a data structure that can be queried efficiently, but again, comes with some dangers. And then on the read side, you know, this is where it's obviously very interesting. There's tons of solutions out there like Apache Spark. Presto is kind of getting into this area where they're not even a database. They're just purely in-memory query execution engines that can scale horizontally. So they can take a whole bunch of data out of, you know, other databases and just perform really tight amounts of aggregate queries and really complex joins because all the data is in memory and the access is very quick. Now you see, you know, some databases like MemSQL is kind of doing the same thing, but they're also obviously like the storage layer and, you know, using more memory basically in for the read and the query patterns just essentially performs, you know, much more interesting queries at much higher efficiency in terms of performance of speed and things that are kind of accessed from disk and things like that. So I think the right path is very, it's, it's almost like a more simple case of like, well, it's, it's really just, it can help avoid compactions and stuff like that, depending on how much memory you want to set aside. And then 
you know, on the query side, it's really just about, well, how interesting and how many crazy things do you want to throw against this database with your queries? Let's talk about the instantiation of an M3DB. What happens when I stand up an instance of M3DB? What do I need to do? And what does that spin-up process look like? Yeah, great question. This obviously varies, you know, quite significantly with different databases. And, you know, I think the longer that a database has been around or or the more simpler it is in architecture, the easier it is to stand up and start using essentially. That's, you know, primarily due to the fact that it's either simpler just in nature or it's had a whole bunch of engineering work to make it look like it's simpler in nature to, to operate which you know, I think is very important. And software today is really only used when it can be used in a relatively straightforward manner by the masses, that is. I mean, you know, you'll find some shops that will spend countless hours setting up a very complicated architecture because it makes sense based on what they're trying to do. So with M3 and M3DB, it's a little bit of a compromise here because it isn't the world's simplest database. You know, it is similar to Cassandra and other distributed databases, it does want to allow you to add or remove machines and handle all the data retransmission between the nodes by itself. So for instance, even really highly scalable databases like ClickHouse won't do this for you. You know, you can basically send data to different nodes and it has a way to fetch all the data from all the machines but it won't actually retransmit data when you add or remove machines to the cluster. So with M3 and M3DB, what it looks like when you set it up is you either use ETCD, either embedded in the M3DB nodes itself, and if you do that, you have the concept of seed nodes. And seed nodes are essentially, similar to Cassandra, these database nodes that all other nodes know the address of, and so they can discover the rest of the cluster by talking to these seed nodes. So what that looks like is a little bit different to if you set up a dedicated ETCD cluster, which is essentially just like another set of database nodes purely for storing M3DB's membership and topology information. So ETCD and M3DB is used for essentially making sure which database machines own which parts of the partition range, and then managing the state transitions when machines are added or removed from that set of distributed database nodes. So, you know, it's very important that that data is highly consistent because if it's not, then database nodes can disagree about the partition range that they own, and you will get a very different answer for what your data looks like, depending on which database node you query, if they ever start to not be aligned. So I'm sure you'll find different Cassandra users that have come across this problem where some of the Cassandra nodes in the gossip ring, the way that you know Cassandra shares topology information is via peer-to-peer protocol, exchanging membership information with other machines in the distributed database cluster, And certain operators of Cassandra have found that essentially sometimes this tends to not be essentially unaligned and can sometimes fall into a state where it never recovers. And so then issuing a query to different nodes may give you back different results because they thought that they owned a different set of the partition. So that is probably the biggest thing with M3DB. 
it's basically setting up a NetCitra D cluster, either whether that's embedded or dedicated. And then once you have that going, then you know you kind of just basically add machines as you start to need to scale up or scale down your instances. We do have a Kubernetes operator that we do use pretty frequently. And that, that is actually helpful because it kind of manages at least setting, performing cluster operations based on the desired amount of instances that you would like in your cluster. And then you can you know, declaratively edit the definition of your cluster and with respect to number of nodes and the availability zones that it should be split between. And then the Kubernetes operator basically makes calls the database APIs you know, for you essentially to basically add or remove machines as required. Once I have M3DB set up, I can issue writes to it. I can make reads from it. Talk about the read and write path for M3DB specifically. Yeah, most definitely. I, and this is one thing that you know I, I love to talk about because it's kind of an evolving thing. So most time series databases don't have what we call a you know full text reverse index on top of their time series metadata. So Prometheus and M3DB both have this, and I believe that InfluxDB has this as well. And basically what it allows you to do is to do multi-dimensional lookups on your time series metadata. So for instance, for metrics and Prometheus metrics, this means like labels on your metrics. And then it essentially, once you specify you know multiple of these filters, it will find all the, you know, the matching dimension values individually and then essentially find all the underlying time series that match those dimension or label values and intersect all of those sets together to give you one list of time series that match all of your filters. And then, you know, you can perform aggregate functions on that and other interesting things. But basically, most time series databases, you know, don't really support this type of multi-dimensional full text search. And so with M3DB, you know, once you start writing in metrics or, you know, you can actually write protobuf messages to M3DB now. But regardless, once you start writing those time series in and you associate them with different tag values, as we like to call them, which are essentially just dimensions and dimension values, you can then on the query side, basically look up, you specify a list of filters that will basically be unions together to compromise the set of time series that are returned to you. And then, of course, you know, if you uh, use a query language like PromQL on top of that, which you can if, if you use an M3 query or an M3 coordinator service that sits in front of M3DB, that basically allows you to perform functions on top of these time series that come back. So that's, you know, really useful if you want to do, you know, summing or perform histogram calculations based on buckets of data that you wrote to your database in a histogram fashion and, you know, other kind of complex time series statistical functions on top of that data. So that's kind of what it looks like. And, you know, I think one thing that's kind of new is kind of the combination of Apache Lucene and Elasticsearch type features, which are basically providing full text search on on multi-dimensions being added to databases natively right now, which I think is definitely a pattern that we've only seen to, to start happening, you know, probably within the last few years. Chris, 
Cruise is a San Francisco-based company building a fully electric, self-driving car service. Building self-driving cars is complex, involving problems up and down the stack, from hardware to software, from navigation to computer vision. We are at the beginning of the self-driving car industry, and Cruise is a leading company in the space. Join the team at Cruise by going to getcruise.com slash careers. That's G-E-T-C-R-U-I-S-E dot com slash careers. Cruise is a place where you can build on your existing skills while developing new skills and experiences that are pioneering the future of industry. There are opportunities for back-end engineers, front-end developers, machine learning programmers, and many more positions. At Cruise, you will be surrounded by talented, driven engineers, all while helping make cities safer and cleaner. Apply to work at Cruise by going to getcruise.com slash careers. That's getcruise.com slash careers. Thank you to Cruise for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Talk about how compression fits into the architecture of performing writes to M3DB. Do you compress data as it comes in? Most definitely. So, yeah, different databases have very different uh, approaches to this. You know, some rely on the file system to do all of the compression for them, or they use custom compression for each type of field that they're storing. For instance, a lot of monitoring solutions as like to use a variant of a Float64 data compression algorithm called TSZ. TSZ is a Float64 compression algorithm first published in a VLDB paper about Facebook's in-memory time series database, Gorilla, which we kind of mentioned before. If you Google Gorilla TSZ PDF, (laughs) you'll find the paper I'm talking about. And essentially, you know, this algorithm is heavily based on delta of delta on the values themselves that are written to the database. And it's also very good at doing delta of delta on the timestamps. So essentially, you know, if you're writing in at the same frequency for a given time series, the delta of delta on the timestamp basically becomes zero because you're writing in at the exact same time. And you can encode basically you know, with a single zero bit, the fact that you have a new value and it showed up the exact same distance as the last one relative to the last one's distance with its last data point. And so that's, you know, quite important on achieving very high compression rates. And so why you might want to do that is that you basically can store much less in memory and much less on disk if you don't support any type of compression at all on your data. So this is something that's highly desirable, especially in larger data sets, because it essentially means that you basically just pay a lot less, but also, you know, you use a lot less memory. So that means your database engine in in general is doing a lot less work because, you know, as we mentioned before with compactions, it means you can buffer a lot more data in memory before you need to flush out a representation of that data to disk. Again, as long as you're persisting that to disk in a journal for temporarily keeping that data around for durability reasons. So some time series databases like IMDB from Sokonis and TimescaleDB rely on 
ZFS, which is for compression, and ZFS is a file system. And so I think those come out to, you know, I've heard numbers quoted in like the three bytes per data point range, while others like in Prometheus, M3DB, and InfluxDB use TSZ or a variant of their own TSZ algorithm. And for instance, M3B uses a variant called M3TSZ, which is actually not 100% lossless. Uh, it trades off accuracy after a configurable amount of number of decimal values are used. So, you know, for monitoring workloads, this is acceptable. So you may not care about after eight or 10 decimal values, how accurate the precision of the Float64 data you're writing in comes back. So, you know, for protobuf storage, this extension is not enabled by default in M3DB because you probably want to read what you wrote. But for monitoring workloads, it means basically an extra 20 to 40% of compression we can eke out on top of the default TSZ algorithm. Because once you basically look at, make a Float64 piece of data look like an int, which has just been offset by the number of decimal values that you're storing, you can use much less bits to represent the delta of delta on that value. So that's kind of how the different databases, you know, support compression. And for reference, you know, a default data point in the metric universe basically takes 16 bytes to represent in raw format. So that's eight bytes for the timestamp as a UN64, and then eight bytes for a float64 data point value. So that, you know, together it basically means that you're setting aside 16 bytes for every data point. With, you know, I mentioned that INDB and TimescaleDB use ZFS, which, you know, has been said to roughly come out to around three point something data points per value, that's a pretty significant gain. And then, you know, M3DB and like other databases, which use TSZ and TSZ variants, is able to, you know, improve on that down to like 1.2 to 1.4 bytes per sample. So which, you know, ends up equaling almost like roughly 11x compression on your data. So again, you know, this just allows for much more dense machines and dense database nodes. And, you know, because of compaction can mean that, you know, it can use less memory and essentially compact at a lot lower frequency than a traditional database that isn't using compression. Beautiful. One prominent feature of M3DB that you've talked about is its ability to store high cardinality data. Can you explain what that means in more detail and how that impacts the architecture of the database? Yeah, great question. So I've found that a lot of people have very different opinions on what is high cardinality data. So for instance... And by the way, it might be worth defining that term cardinality. Yep, that's a great point. So when we talk about cardinality... We may mean a few different things, but really what it comes down to, at least in the monitoring space, is talking about the unique number of entities that you are either tracking or the granularity to which you are bucketing things together to look at. So you can imagine like the highest cardinality in some sense is just looking at a stream of raw events because if you were to group all like events together and aggregate them, even if you just want to sum, say, one of their fields together. If you're using raw events and raw events has something like the user ID as one of the fields in them, then when you try to group them together, they all look like distinct buckets. So which means that essentially the cardinality, which is again, like the number of unique 
views on the data ends up being equal to the same number of raw events that you put into your collection. So, you know, that's the most highest cardinality you can think of. However, you know, when you kind of like just collect raw events, it means that you basically end up storing way more data than you ever would if you actually start to collect and group some of these events together. So that's why, you know, at a a certain level of of scale, it makes sense to use something that's not just storing the raw events for you, especially if you want to do quick and, you know, relatively fast queries on this data, either for monitoring or for maybe you're doing it for routing. Perhaps you're building some analytics for some of the users of, of an application that you're building. So there's many different reasons why you might want a faster view over a set of data rather than just constantly scanning or filtering on raw events. But basically that cardinality, you know, what that cardinality comes back to is like, how many dimensions are you going to keep on the buckets that you are going to be aggregating on when you look at the data that you're collecting from a set of events? And so for metrics, this essentially is always associated with a, how many unique values you have in a given label, and then also the combination of those unique values in a label multiplied by every other label that's used on that metric. So for instance, you know, if I have a metric that basically has the name of the host in it, as well as the name of a book title, for instance, if I'm selling books, I guess, then essentially the cardinality of that data will be the number of hosts that is unique that will process you know most of these queries for your books multiplied by the number of books that you have so you know if you have 10,000 servers and you have 10 books you're selling then that's a cardinality of 100,000 so this is why a lot of the time you essentially don't tend to see things like customer ID or uh, request ID put in metrics because metrics are meant to be more volumetric views of your data, not just raw events. And that, you know, again, is helpful for some of the reasons I, I mentioned before. So, you know, with M3DB, the support for high cardinality came from the fact that even when we, you know, taught and educated engineers as best as possible to leave data that they weren't going to slice and dice by in their queries. Even at that time, there was still such a combinatorial nature of the data that they were storing because of just, you know, regular dimensions that we had at the organization, which is things like, you know, the city, things like the hexagon that your trip started in, things like the iOS app version you are using, things like the Android app version you are using, and all sorts of other things that it made a whole lot of sense to keep the dimensionality for basically looking at this data. And you'll notice that in tracing systems and other systems that basically also, you know, like to store very uh, high cardinality data, what, what tends to be One of the approaches to combat this is, you know, you bucket it with the smallest amount of buckets, as as I mentioned, to kind of reduce the cardinality. And then you keep basically a sample of like the request ID or a customer ID next to one of these buckets of each type so that you can then go and investigate like a specific instance of a drop of data that fell into one of these buckets. And, you know, I can kind of explain a little bit more how that's used with exemplars and, and what that looks like in tracing. But you kind of get the general concept with that explanation. Yeah, I think we should zoom out at this point and put things in, in a little bit more context. 
There's probably people listening who are curious about time series databases right now. They're evaluating whether they should use a time series database for their system. You've kind of answered who should be using a time series database in an earlier response. My sense is that there are people who should be using M3DB. There are other people who perhaps should be using a different time series database for their application. My sense is that this is a growing field and there are differences in what people should or should not be using and what they're going to be optimizing for in these different systems. Can you give some selection criteria for the listeners who are thinking about which time series database to choose for their application? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think, you know, we've been talking about mostly open source time series databases. So so that's really where a lot of my advice is going to fall into. I will say, at least for monitoring, that you really can't go wrong starting off with Prometheus. Kind of like, you know, Postgres and MySQL, it is essentially a single machine that Prometheus is isolated to. It's unaware of its other machines. You can make it aware of other machines and also archive some of the data that it's storing using a open source, you know, project like Thanos. Thanos is essentially clusters the the Prometheus instances so that they are aware of each other and then they can query each other to fulfill data that may span the different instances and it backs up some of the data to S3 for a you know a kind of like a colder storage like experience when you want to access more historical data so you know i think starting with prometheus makes a lot of sense and then basically whether you want to store basically store data that is going to exceed a single prometheus instance or you want to st- like basically access data that's being collected in multiple regions and multiple availability zones and have them isolated to each other, but still provide access to a single query layer on top of all of them, that's when you want to use something a little bit more powerful. And so, you know, Thanos is one solution I mentioned there. Again, it's kind of more like clustering Prometheus to be aware of each other and, and use S3 as kind of like a backup and then, then you can actually query, but you know, with obviously elevated response times, it might come with that solution. And then M3DB is more basically if you know you want to essentially store this data, and you know that the, the data will either increase over time, or you want to be able to access most of it at, at pretty low latency, at least across all the regions, and for you know some level of historical look back. Because even on a single Prometheus instance, for instance you are really restricted by the size of the disk. Uh, so at very high ride volumes, that might not be actually a lot of space for you. But it depends on your workload. So, you know, I really think that you should start off with Prometheus for monitoring and then evaluate the other solutions that are out there based on your needs. And then, you know, there's there's a few out there now, and some of them that are open source, some of them that aren't. Like InfluxDB is, is open source, but only open source for a single a single machine, so you can't use a cluster version of InfluxDB, for instance, for storing monitoring data, unless you're paying for the enterprise edition. And then, obviously, like you know, I would also kind of recommend that you look at some of the cloud vendors out there as well. You need to weigh up how much they're giving you for how much it's going to cost you to use them. Again, depending on your business, if you're a very high margin business, extremely high margin, that that might be totally fine. But as you're seeing with Kubernetes and other dynamic workloads, there is an increasing number of basic dimensions that you're trying to query and store metrics data. 
in your system. So, you know, pod names are basically cycling around constantly. There's essentially all sorts of different tags that could be added based on, you know, what namespace you're running in, what service, you know, microservice name is running inside the Kubernetes cluster, and a whole bunch of other things that that basically is increasing the regular level of cardinality in these systems these days. So, that's why, you know, I think like the efficiency and the cost model is becoming more and more important in the modern day because honestly, people are just trying to do a lot more with their systems and they want more out of their, their monitoring and observability. So, yeah, I think you'll see this ongoing evolution of it, it may make sense at different points in time depending on how advanced a cloud vendor is versus how advanced a purely monitoring focused vendor is versus how well the open source solutions today are, are performing and how easy they are to use. So, you know, I think it's a mix of all of these things and I think it's something that's changing very rapidly out there. Rob Skillington, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a pleasure talking to you once again. Yeah, it's been great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Podsheets is an open source podcast hosting platform. We are building Podsheets with the learnings from Software Engineering Daily. And our goal is to be the best place to host and monetize your podcast. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, check out podsheets.com. We believe the best solution to podcasting will be open source. And we had a previous episode of Software Engineering Daily where we discussed the open source vision for Podsheets. We're in the early days of podcasting, and there's never been a better time to start a podcast. We will help you through the hurdles of starting a podcast on Podsheets. And we're already working on tools to help you with the complex process of finding advertisers for your podcast and working with the ads in your podcast. These are problems that we have encountered in Software Engineering Daily. We know them intimately. And we would love to help you get started with your podcast. You can check out podsheets.com to get started as a podcaster today. Podcasting is as easy as blogging. If you've written a blog post, you can start a podcast. We'll help you through the process. And you can reach us at any time by emailing help at podsheets.com. We also have multiple other ways of getting in touch on Podsheets. Podsheets is an open source podcast hosting platform. And I hope you start a podcast because I'm still running out of content to listen to. Start a podcast on podsheets.com. <laughs>